It is and has been the world's largest annual medical meeting, the Radiological Society of North America. I'm Dr. Jason Bernholtz, and I attended the 94th annual RSNA in Chicago, along with some 62,000 attendees from all over the world. We learned from more than 4,000 scientific papers, posters, and special focus sessions. I spoke first with Dr. Michael Welch from the Mallinckrodt Institute in St. Louis, who gave the annual New Horizons oration. Then I spoke with Dr. David Weinreb from St. Raphael's Hospital in New Haven, Connecticut, about emergency and critical care uses of a new portable CT scanner. And then I spoke with Dr. Rizlan Aslam from the Faculty of the Radiology Department of the University of California, San Francisco, on a technique for getting quantitative bone density information as a routine part of conventional CT exams. These three interviews illustrate directed research on the brink of becoming a major advance in tumor diagnosis and treatment, bringing a CT scanner to a critically ill patient instead of transporting a patient to the equipment, and a technique for increasing diagnostic information retrieval from a routine CT scan. There have been progressive advances in all of the imaging modalities and related molecular and informational technologies. From my own perspective as a clinical radiologist, the most important drive for improvement in our services always begins with a peer-to-peer dialogue between the physician managing care and the consultant radiologist about what is best for the immediate needs of individual patients. Our first guest was Dr. Michael Welch. Dr. Welch, thank you very much for joining us. Now, you were picked out of the entire world to give the New Horizons lecture, and you spoke about nanoparticles. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I was asked to give an overview of the technology known as nanotechnology in imaging, but actually nanotechnology is important for drug delivery, the delivery of all sorts of drugs, as well as imaging. What I mean by nanoparticles are particles that are very small, and they, obviously the word nano is because they're, they're very small, that you are probably two meters tall, that the sorts of particles I was talking are nanometers tall, or from 10 to 100 nanometers tall, so they're almost a billionth the the size of your height. And the advantage of using these very small particles, as I pointed out in my talk, is the smaller you get in a particle, or even a cube, the greater the surface area. If you sort of take the same volume and have a cube and then split it into eight cubes, then split it into 64 cubes, the surface area increases significantly. So this means you can put what we call functional groups onto these particles, and the smaller the particle gets, the more functional groups you can put on. So the ultimate nanoparticle for use in medicine, and there are such particles that are being used in preclinical studies, is a particle that's made in a totally controlled chemical way, so all the particles have exactly the same size and shape. This is a major advance one of the major excitements of nanotechnology. Inside the particle, you might pack a therapeutic, so it could be a cancer drug. Then on the outside of the particle, you can attach something that keeps the particle in the circulation, and you can design it so it keeps the particle in the circulation for the sort of time you want, be it for an image to accumulate, be it for the drug to release. You can then put what we call targeting groups on, groups that target a receptor or an antigen on a tumor surface. You can put a group on that will take the particle into the cell, what's called a transduction peptide, 
that carries the particle into the cell, and then you can put on it an agent that can be used for imaging, be it a magnetic resonance probe, a probe for CT, or a nuclear probe for PET or SPECT imaging. So the advantage of nanoparticles is this unbelievable multifunctionality where you can have a drug, you can have all these other functions that assist in the drug delivery. So it sounds like in some ways it's like a non-replicating virus. That's a very good point because actually the most nanoparticles that people are building, if you look at the size, they're virtually the size of nanoparticles. So your analogy is actually perfect. Thank you very much. That was fascinating. Next, I spoke with Dr. David Weinreb from St. Raphael's Hospital in New Haven. Dr. Weinreb, hello. Thank you for joining us. I wonder if you want to tell us a little bit about portable CT and why this is a new and special thing. Well, at the hospital where I was working, one of the major challenges that we faced when treating acute stroke patients is that it often took a very long time for them to get a head CT. When a patient arrives into the emergency room and they're presenting with signs and symptoms of acute stroke, it's absolutely necessary that they get a head CT as quickly as possible. And due to the availability of CT at our institution, this was a big challenge for us. We were finding that it would often take as long as 40 minutes between when the patient would arrive and when we could complete the head CT. During my time at that hospital, we acquired a portable head CT scanner, and it was dedicated for use exclusively in the emergency department. By having this new technology, we were able to scan patients from the ED much faster. Based on our research, we predict that this could have very significant impacts on the care of acute stroke patients. Well, let me ask you a few questions. You started out by saying stroke patients, so I presume that you're also doing vascular studies as part of this. It's not just plain CT, but you're perfusing the material of choice and watching inflow and outflow. Mm -hmm. Is that true? That's right. I mean, the technology, it has the capability not only to do non-contrast CT, but also CT angiography and CT perfusion. Those are also important modalities in terms of the whole package for imaging of the stroke patient. But really the most important thing in the acute setting is making sure that there's no hemorrhage within the brain. This can really be best accomplished in a most time-efficient fashion with non-contrast imaging. So the first and greatest priority is to make sure that these patients get a non-contrast study as quickly as possible. If there's no hemorrhage, they could be candidates for TPA. The other modalities such as angiography and perfusion, they have a role, but the most critical thing is, as I said, non-contrast imaging. And that would be head trauma patients too, also. Mm -hmm. This does have an important role that it could play for patients presenting with head trauma to ensure that there's no delay in getting them to the radiology suite for imaging. They could be imaged at their point of care in the emergency department with portable CT imaging. Oh, so you wheel the CT device right to the patient's bed, or do you take them to a special place in the emergency room? At our institution, the way we have it set up is that the patient is wheeled about eight or nine feet from their bed in the emergency room to a special cove within the ER where all imaging, CT, and radiography are are performed. At other institutions, it can be used in the ICU setting as well. At our particular institution, we didn't use it for that application, but many other hospitals are doing that. In those cases, they wheel the CT scanner directly to the patient's room within the ICU and perform the imaging at the patient's bedside without moving the patient at all. Really great. Thank you. Thanks very much. The next discussion was with Dr. Rizwan Aslam from the University of California at San Francisco. Hello. Hello. Thanks for joining our our audience. Thanks for inviting me. Your paper here at the RSNA is entitled Assessment of Bone Mineral Density on CT Colonography. And do you want to tell us a little bit about what motivated your study? That's a very good question. I mean, we at UCSF, where I'm based, we've been doing CT colonography for several years. We get great studies. You know, it's also known as virtual colonoscopy. And these patients are getting a, a, a complete body CT scan. 
And so as well as the information that we're getting about the colon, there's, there's the rest of the, the abdomen and bones that we can look at. And so we came up with the idea, I mean, people have looked you know, previously at extracolonic findings, you know, looking for, you know, on the CT scan. Oh, like aortic aneurysms. Aneurysms, renal cancers, all these other things that you can see that uh, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't see with a, a, standard, virtual col- a standard optical colonoscopy. Uh, and, and so we thought that, you know, why not look for osteoporosis? We scanned the patients, the CT data's there, all we need to do is crunch the numbers, look at the data in a different way, and hopefully it can give us some answers. Okay, so you're not just eyeballing the spine and saying, this is not quite as dense as it should be. You're quantitating this. Sure. We used a software package called BMAP. It was provided to us by, by Philips. And BMAP is short for Bone Mineral Analysis Package. That's what they, they've named it. The software is based on some studies that were performed in the 90s, looking at using CT to assess bone mineral density. And Essentially what they did was they used intrinsic soft tissue density as a guide to assess the bone density. So they they looked at the the muscle density and they looked at the fat density, which are fairly uniform throughout the population, and they used those as as a standard. And from that, you could extrapolate the bone density. And, And that's essentially how the software operates. Oh, very good. So in a sense, this is something that may be available to anyone doing abdominal CT. Exactly right. And, you know, previously people have used abdominal CTs to assess bone mineral density. And I mean, this is a slightly different technique from QCT or, you know, quantitative CT, where patients have a much lower dose CT examination to assess bone mineral density. And usually that requires a phantom. But here... What we thought was these patients have already been scanned. They don't need any more scanning. We have the data. We have the scans. We just need to to look at it in a different way to get some more information. And in your study, you showed that you had exactly identical or comparable values to DEXA scans. Definitely. I mean, these patients had previously had DEXAs. We had their their bone mineral density values. And the CT results were were very comparable. And they probably would have started on on a sort of similar treatment regimen. Do you have any idea, by the way, if the standard of looking at lumbar vertebral bodies is actually the best one? Are there other bone things that you happen to have looked at adventitiously that perhaps looking at the part of the pelvis or some other part of the spine may be better? Sure. I mean, potentially, I mean, those are all avenues for future research. I mean, like the software we use and the study we did, we looked at the lumbar vertebral bodies. Preferentially, the idea is to look at L2, L3, L4, but the advantage of, of CT is that you know, if any of those levels, there's either increased sclerosis or there's a compression fracture, you can go to the level above or below, so you have enough levels to look at where you may have difficulty with other techniques. And also, with the, because it's CT, we can accurately place our region of interest, the bone that we measure, the trabecular bone is what we're interested in, and so we can specifically just target the trabecular bone, whereas in DEXA studies, you're looking at the whole virtual body, so you, you'll pick up areas of sclerosis, facet joint hypertrophy, which, would, which may reduce the, the validity of the results there. So this is all potential for further research, but on this sort of early analysis, the, you know, the results look very good. Now, it's interesting that you picked CT colonography because this is becoming more and more a primary screening method, which means that people may have multiple studies every few years as opposed to one CT ever and then they're gone, cured. Or, and so this sounds like also potentially a way that you can follow people over 
time and identify the emergence of osteoporosis. Precisely. I mean, that's exactly the point. I mean, the populations at risk are very similar, sort of similar age group. You know, once patients are above 50, they need to have their colon screen. Once patients are above 50, they're at risk of developing osteoporosis, particularly women, uh, particularly if they're on steroids or other, other such treatments. And, and that's essentially why, I mean, these patients, if they're going to be screened for colon cancer, they're going to they're have a CT scan. And therefore, you know, the data's there. They could be screened for osteoporosis at the same time, using the same data. No more radiation, just, you know, probably a small amount of additional time and relatively less additional cost compared to having a, a DEXA study just done on its own. This software or this process is not going to replace DEXA because that's a much lower radiation technique. But this is, you know, but we're looking at CT colonography. These patients are getting a whole extra study for, very, you know, for no extra radiation and minimal additional cost. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'm Dr. Jason Bernholtz. Thank you for listening to Conference Highlights on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website, reachmd.com, featuring podcasts of this and other programs.